0: Simon. Hello. Hey Simon. <laughs> hey Hello.
1: Simon, it's Skyler. Simon. Hey doing? Simon. Hello Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon?
0: How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Hi, this is Simon Brooks. I don't think I've ever introduced myself before. And this is my podcast, Conversations with Storytellers. This one is a little long. It's one hour and 45 minutes So sit down and hold on tight. Maybe take a break in the middle. Tim and Leanne have been performers for a long time. Tim in theatre-based work and Leanne in poetry and music. Leanne holds an MA in literature and BA in psychology, toured with the likes of Gary Schneider, both taught and worked in schools before getting together to form the storytelling duo Jennings and Ponder. Tim and Leanne have a number of recordings out which have won Parents' Choice Awards as well as awards from the American Library Association. I have seen them both perform a number of times and chatted with them briefly after performances. They are wonderful people and I consider myself lucky to have been able to sit down and share as much time as I did with them both. Tim Jennings and Leanne Ponder are a powerhouse duo of folk and fairy tales, witty, pithy and grounded deeply in the magic of the old tales. I heard their recordings before I ever saw them and was and still am blown away by what they both accomplished. Their humour and depth that they bring to storytelling is remarkable. Please enjoy Tim and a little bit of Leanne. How did you and Leanne meet? Well, we got
1: together, we met, Leanne and I, uh, at a meeting for the Vermont Arts Council. We were both in a programme called, at that time, the uh, Vermont Council on the Arts Artists in Residence Program. Right. And later it became the Vermont Arts Council Teaching Artist Program, which was the direction things went, and I didn't care for as much.
0: Okay.
1: And at that time, there were a number of times when you came together uh, as artists in a region, and one and a half first first half was when they told you what the latest rules were, and changes and the second half was um, uh, they would bring some principals in oh. and you would all stand up and introduce yourselves and the principals would go mm, 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 mm. <laughs> and uh, I had done this a few times and it was always uh, awkward and it was less time each time as the number of principals grew smaller and the number of performers grew larger.
0: Right.
1: And so we were down to three minutes. And during that three minutes, you could say, you should hire me and none of those other people. Right. Or you could try to think of something else to do. So and I said, uh, I did this long nonsense piece. I said, my name's Tim Jennings. I've been all around the world. I've been from the attic to the cellar. Back porch to the barn. I've been out the front door halfway to the gate. old man said it was time for that. I was thinking on. So I... Went and I shucked and I shelved the pigs, bucket of slops, so and I got there. Well, pumpkins is all the pig pats I had to pick up a the pig. Knock them pumpkins on out of there. Let the old gray mare down the kitchen, poop through the so forth and so on. Mm. And uh, she liked that. And at the time, she was transitioning from a poetry writer to a fiction writer. And uh, she had actually started a novel in which there was a storyteller character. So she wanted to investigate This was her story anyway, and see what was going on. So she found out when the next time I was going to perform was. And it was actually a street show on Church Street. And she showed up for that. And then the next time there was a meeting, she called up and said, "Uh, why don't we go down together? And the rest was history.
0: Nice. I like that. Now, did you... So did you start playing music together before the storytelling? Because you you, were in this, you created this thing between the two of you called Shifra, is that yeah.
1: right? Yeah, that was the first thing. Uh, first thing we got together. Right. And that was, the we had a connection, a strong connection right from the start. Mm. And I played with a band playing mostly more like contra dance music and mm-hmm. American old time music and uh, some of those 1920s Charlie Poole, uh, mm. uh, uh, you know, honky tonk, early honky tonk songs. And some, you know, minstrel show songs, actually, too, when you come right down to a medicine show. I prefer to call it a medicine show. Yeah. What kind of material? And she noticed that uh, when we came into a room with my friends, that the people would say, hi, Tim, hello. Uh.
0: <laughs>
1: and she wanted to be taken seriously by people that didn't care about poetry. And uh, so she wanted to play. She had been a teenage folk singer, like almost everybody else. She didn't want to have anybody think that she was trying to hoard it on my show. And so rather than picking up an instrument that would be playing the kind of music I was mostly playing at the time, she had been stopped by a harp player several times on Church Street just like, oh, I couldn't go further because she was so drawn to it. And then uh, she listened to a lot of harp music while she was writing. She would listen to um, Patrick Ball and various other people. Um, and she would be writing for like, she was demonic. She would write for like eight to ten hours a day. I mean, she was really, really trying to get it done. And so the music was all in her head. And then a harp came into her way and she figured that nobody would think she was trying to horn in if she was playing the harp. Tiny little wire-strung harp.
0: Wait, a Celtic harp? Uh, a
1: Celtic harp.
0: Uh, <clears throat>
1: and wire-strung strings very close together, okay. uh, difficult to play, uh, difficult to tune, but she stuck with it and was able to make music on it after a year, enough music so that she could send a nice uh, homemade cassette to her nieces for Christmas
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then she thought well why not get a better harp and we were driving around trying different harps in different places and she got one and was uh, starting to play with other people and at one point somebody was going to they were going to go out on Church Street and play together and all of a sudden, I got, I'd been playing with people, and they started playing with other people, and then I wasn't playing with them anymore. Oh, wow. And so uh, the idea that Le- Leanne would suddenly be playing, and I would not be a part of this, uh, I'd always thought that my instrument wouldn't go together with hers, in fact. Because of the way I played, so I just changed the way I played, and, and this is the accordion. This is it's called a, it's called a concertina. It's, it's a concertina. it's an English concertina. It's uh, it is a free read instrument. Same physical, little different, um, quite different in the playing, uh, different in the ability to play quietly. Also, you can play concertina. Uh, you can uh, accordion from what I've seen. It's got one volume. You push to you get the, the right. till the reed starts vibrating. And if you want it to be louder you put more reeds on it. That's why it has this Oh, is that
0: what it is? That's why it
1: has this wet smeary sound when they're playing accordions. Oh. Because there's a lot of lot of reeds vibrating with the big ones vibrating. I didn't know that. Similar with you know, like those big harmonicas with yeah, yeah, this yeah. double triple reed. It's like that, that smeary sound. The huh. concertina, the way that the <clears throat> thing is set up, uh, for whatever reason uh, maybe it's the, the kind of metal that they make the reed out of. Maybe it's the way the reed is sit, set in the chamber. Um, but you can just press it a little bit. And if it's a good one, it'll just play quietly. And if you press it loudly, it, it can really, boom, you can put a lot of sound to it. So I did both with Leanne, and we were playing on Church Street quite a lot and got noticed, actually, and uh, started playing Weddings. And it playing out. And sometimes I'd always had a thing where I would be telling stories and I would be, have a band that would play with me. Sometimes in between the shows. Not always, but I would always play some during the show and sometimes there would be additional musicians.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then meanwhile, Leanne started working on a, a friend of ours who was doing something with the Shelburne Museum
0: Beautiful museum.
1: And it was an outreach kind of a thing. They wanted somebody who would take on a part, like an historical reenactor, of a barefoot peddler and would take objects in a basket around so that it would, you could, like, go to historical societies and libraries and things like that. So... She did that and instantly put the harp in. I don't think there were a whole lot of barefoot peddlers that carried harps no. around. And in fact, it was a totally fictitious character. <laughs> and uh, some people found it very suspicious in many ways. But it was it was a, it was beloved. People really liked it. It was uh, you know it was funny. It was she's charming in person. Yeah. When she's uh, presenting her material, when she was doing readings, it was the same thing. And uh, so then we started taking turns telling stories. And then play music together. And then we thought, well, what would happen? Would it be possible to try telling the same story at the same time? And there's a couple of things to this. One of which is, uh, it's always very difficult for me to come up with new material. I did it the way a comedian does, which is, you you have stuff that sucks. And you do it in front of an audience, and they, they sort of like, tell you which parts of it are the worst yes. and then you work on the parts that are left Right, and you can always, always tell when they're paying attention even if they're polite they're, they're, they're either like with you or they're like drifting away yeah. and I will say that my first audiences were not polite my first audiences were uh, ju- after I abandoned my friends as a possible audience uh, like juvenile delinquents uh, children with uh, an, an adolescence with um, attitudes so
0: when was this when you uh,
1: well let's see the first group was in the early 70s I'd seen an old lady her name is Sarah Cleveland Uh, she was uh, from I think the Lake George area in upstate New York but I saw her at a folk festival and later on I saw her in Vermont she only had a couple of stories but uh, when I saw her in the 60s I should say I was tripping at the time I was a young hippie mm-hmm. and it was a folk festival and a festival yeah. and uh it was very powerful i, I achieved, it was a not a cosmic story it was a straightforward three brothers story uh, where the guy gets something that makes it easier for him after his, he did, is nicer to a starving man than his brothers were and then he goes down underground after his brothers have been chased away and rescues the princess using his magic item. But it was great. She just had such command of it. She'd heard it since she was a little girl, been telling it ever since. There was no... uh, She didn't do any of the things that I do now. She didn't do voices. She didn't move around. She didn't move her hands. She was... uh, That part of New York's not unlike New England. Right. Uh, People, uh, you know, she had her hands folded in her lap and told the story into the microphone but it was compelling. I was compelled. And that was what made me want to start doing that. Prior to that time, I had been, you know, I was a teenage folk singer. I played music with my friends. Um, I told elaborate personal experience anecdotes mm-hmm. that uh, were very well shaped, much along the lines that people are doing now. Yeah. Uh, that Consciously artistic. Um, people would request particular stories from me. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, it was, uh, but this was something else. And this time, I said, "This is what I want to do," and it, I didn't have a whole lot of help. There wasn't uh, where I was. There wasn't any kind of there wasn't any help that I knew of. But um, my wife at that time had, was had been an old time musician person, so she knew about uh, Ray Hicks. She knew about Richard Chase. She knew about the records uh, mm-hmm. that were recorded by uh, Folk Legacy. Uh, during the 60s, of those two people. So I heard those, and then I, um, and I learned to tell some of them, like you do. Mm-hmm. And then uh, started working on my own stuff. So, and it was a big step to let somebody into that. And Leanne really knew that and wanted to know if I was really sure I wanted to do that. And we decided, well, we'll, we'll do something very short at first and we 'll see how it goes, and if it sucks we won 't do it anymore and if people like it, um, then that might be a direction to go in, right. because one of the things about that was and I think this is the the trap of duo story I call it duo storytelling i don 't call it tandem storytelling
0: yeah.
1: i don 't call it tandem storytelling because what is their tandem there 's tandem bicycles right. I don't want to ride a tandem bicycle. It's, that's the fun of being a bicycle is you're on a bike, you, you steer it, it goes where you, you know. It's yeah, the, yeah. And I don't want to be a, a, a yoked oxen either. Right. That's yeah. not a thing I like, I want to do, but I be part of a duo, you know, or, or uh, that's something else. So we sat down, we did, um, the first story we told is uh, on our last CD. And it was, I think, might be the first thing on our last CD. This is the Vampire Princess. Uh, That that album. Yeah. Uh, The first one is, um, we call it Mr. and Mrs. Knight. But it's a Grimm's fairy tale. It's it's called, uh, depending on which translation you look at, it's called The Old Witch. It's called Frau Trude. It's called Mistress Trudy. It's called, you know, it's got a lot of different names. Yeah. Um, We call it Mr. and Mrs. Knight. We make it a couple. And I knew that story because I'd been teaching in junior high school and I came into somebody else's routine, like the, the, the English teacher that when I first came there had started teaching Grimm for junior high. She thought it was perfect bridge between kids' stuff and adult stuff and she made up a whole uh, curriculum thing with it yeah. and every kid had a complete Grimm and... Uh, by the end of the, uh, the semester, they were supposed to be able to tell a story. Some every kid will have told a story by the end of the semester, and they all picked Frau Trude because it was so short. Oh, right, right, and right, right. if you read it, it's not nice. It doesn't. You don't. It's not easy to figure it out. It was. Uh, it. In fact, people hate it. Um, it's about a little girl that like is curious and get and as a result gets like killed burned to death and um and, but by this wicked witch and because she did what her parents told her not to right and uh, i did i don't know what to do with this I, I i you're on your own i can't help you with it i don't see it and then somewhere along, I suddenly, I guess I would read it, I think it was in the, uh, the Randall Jarrell, um, I, don't who, I can't remember the other guy, illustrated by uh, Maurice Sendak, the juniper oh, tree wow. yeah, to yeah, collection. Yeah. And the way they presented it, I saw it. I said, oh, I said, and I laughed. And uh, Leanne Wondered what I was laughing at, and I told it to her the way I thought it was supposed to go, and she laughed too. So we said, "Let's do that one. It's short, and we get it." Or we, we have an approach, <laughs> yes. and we spent like three months on this thing that's like a half a page in the uh, Grimm's Fairy Tale book, and it was fun. Unlike every other time when I've tried to like make a story work, the early stages of making a, taking a story off of the page and into into the world um, the, it was interesting we both were very picky and we're trying stuff out and seeing what we could do and we both uh, we had a flow we had a connection uh, we were musically attuned so we were used to making things happen in time to create an effect right um, it, and and people really liked it
0: yeah I mean I think you call it um, counterpart narrative and I think that's probably the best description I've heard of what you did.
1: I've called it that. Yeah. I have. I don't know enough about counterpoint to make sure that's true. <laughs> so I, I, it seems, I
0: mean, maybe I don't, I, but I like it. Nobody's complained <laughs> no, and
1: no. I've said it to musicians and they don't mind.
0: Yeah. No. And I've heard people
1: that come close to that. I should say also there, there were a couple of times I didn't think you could do it at all and then, uh, I mean, I just like, every time I heard tandem storytelling sometimes I liked it all right mostly I didn't right because yeah. I think a lot of times people get into it because it's so hard to learn how to make a story work and if you've got somebody else there somebody else is listening somebody's always listening somebody's always reacting somebody's always like there with you oh, awesome. and yeah. and you don't get lost and what the what, what, what you know you know <laughs> You don't have to do that. Yeah, if you, you start you, to die. You, you split up it up and you learn your lines and you do them back and forth. And it's a little <laughs> ping pong. Yeah. But uh, but you can see why they do that. And that we didn't settle for ping pong. No, you didn't. Uh, but um,
0: you you shuffle the deck of words. <laughs> we, we, we
1: had fun and it was uh, and we tried stuff and we were aiming for. See, we knew what it was supposed to do. We knew, and we were able to do as individuals what it was supposed to do. We were able to uh, have that transparency, that sort of naked drive that good solo folk narrative has, where there's not anything between the two of you but the story. Yes, you know, that you and the audience, and somehow or other, just by being who you are really intensely and making it happen, who you are sort of goes away and you're all in the story and how that happens is uh, so we knew that's what we were aiming for and uh, and I think that helped a lot that we were not that we we didn't settle for something clunky that it was like that it, it should be have that quality but also take advantage of all the things you can do if you have two voices. Yeah. And they're rhythmic, and I mean, I can't even think about it because we didn't make a list of them. We just worked with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's. I, I love what you two do. Well, thank you very it's, much. It's, what we did,
1: it's, it's not happening anymore. Right, right. It's, uh, uh, Leanne is no longer able to keep the material in her head. And it's very sad. Uh, fortunately, the thing that we always had, the connection, is still there. And, Hopefully, will continue to be still there uh, for a long, long time yet.
0: i think so too. So I saw that you've been on PBS. Well, I was. I was. It wasn't. It was no. That was solo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah no. It, I had a series of things. There was. A, there was a, it was actually Vermont. Public uh, television. Vermont public television. It was. Uh, I. Don't think I was ever on anything that was like syndicated f- further than that. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Um, certainly. oh Well, uh, yes, radio. There were a few radio shows
0: okay.
1: that I was on that did get um, did get broadcast in other places. Uh, and that f- was and some of that was duo.
0: How did they find you for that? I mean, what 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 brought them to you? Or
1: well, the television show. Started with, I went in, there used to be a lot more local programming on Vermont Public Television, and one of them was a a concert show. And I went and presented myself to them for the concert show. And then there was a fellow who was looking for something, which is not what I was. But uh, he figured out how to, to, the two of us together, him and his crew. He was looking for something that he could like, he had like one of his real shows and then he wanted something that could be a variable length where he could tell and when it was just one guy and they could like uh, fill in the space when he had like three stories and there was 10 minutes left over five minutes left over to the five minutes well that was never true i had my material he never understood this uh, i had my material it was as long as it was right and uh, he kept trying to direct me also to make it easier to do uh The cutaways, he wanted me to say, instead of saying, no, he said, he said, I'm not going to do that. He wanted me to say, no, he said, he said, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Because he wanted to be able to have the narrator and the character uh, from different vantage points. And we ended up doing it. Uh, We did a bunch of them. Uh, And because they were the length that they were, he would present them in installments so, like you would be watching the show, and then there would be the first third or half or whatever oh, of nice. the story that so it I was doing people back. I thought that it was fine uh, and we did it. It was interesting i don't I haven't seen anybody else do it like this. Television tends to make storytelling dinky uh more so in the past because the the screen was so small it was like a little puppet show
0: yeah.
1: uh not so much now now it's like still a lot bigger and and certainly I'll, I'll watch a comedian on television, and I, especially if it's a live, a live show,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and you don't feel like you're missing anything
0: yes.
1: by watching that. But that wasn't going to happen, the live show. So what we did was I kept, we kept the rhythm by me telling the story to the camera, straight to the camera. Also, I learned how to do that. I learned how to tell a story when there wasn't anybody listening which is, as you know, <laughs>
0: really
1: just about impossible. Yes. And the way I did that was by doing live radio. Because regardless of what Bob and Ray say, which is nobody's listening, right. which is supposed to give you the, the freedom to do whatever you want, you have the awareness that there is an ear out there. You can't like stop and say, oh, I'm to do that over again. You have to do it, and you have to do it with with drive yes in fact and nobody's looking so you can like close your eyes and do it all for the microphone and uh and if you do that a few times you begin you begin to get some feedback that people did listen to it and liked it and anyway you knew that and after i did a couple of these television shows i became aware of the fact that people were watching it i would have somebody you know i'd I'd get a cab, take me and my stuff to the bus station, and the guy like at midnight, and the guy would say, "You know who you look like? <laughs> you look like that guy on TV." So I, I, I got much more relaxed with it, and I was able to do it, and also with you know with a, with a full drive, and also you know you can poop out and start over again, yeah, because it's uh, tape. Yeah. I, also, I had made a recording by that time.
0: And that was Weatherbeard. And that was
1: Weatherbeard. And that was done in that style, with the uh single microphone, uh repeated takes. If I didn't like a bit I would do it over again and then edit it.
0: Yeah. So But it's uh, actually live recording, not scripted or anything
1: like that. Not scripted, no. Yeah. Uh and I knew how it was supposed to sound, so I would listen to it and say it's not supposed to sound like that. <laughs> There's supposed to be a beat there. You know, um, so we could put the beat in. Yeah. You know. So uh so I would do it straight to the camera for a long time. Right. And then he would with like in a place that he would like. He would like going outside. So we would find some scenic area. And then we would go to places that resembled areas in which the uh story was taking place. Often the Shelburne uh, farms where they have those sort of All big... lots of
0: different
1: things going on. Well, it's a big castle y looking place yeah, yeah. and you know, it's sort of got a fairy tale quality to it. And then we would do bits. So I would do. There would be my narration, and then there were the picture of me, very small, running through the woods and falling on my face. That kind of thing. I like that. Yeah, it was pretty good. They're all gone now.
0: They're on. Some of them are on YouTube.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, there was one that was on YouTube. There's
0: two now, I think, unless it's the same one. I haven't looked at them yet.
1: Well, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. Right. I put stuff on YouTube, but this stuff I don't think is on YouTube. Okay. Uh, the 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 edited stuff that was on uh, this guy's show I think he got rid of I think everything went on tape and after a while they needed the tape and they needed the space yeah. and they just threw it all out and they wouldn't give it to me
0: because it was their show in theory because
1: they didn't want me making money on it you know all yeah. that stuff yeah. so there is a thing on YouTube which is me very young uh, doing uh, I think I was doing Dimwit okay and it's not, it's not how I would do it now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is there any story uh, that we did? Well, I mean, amazing. I got,
1: I got better is what I'm trying to no. say. I was, I was always thought I was great, but uh, I wasn't as great as I thought I was. And I did get better. Um, so, and we did a bunch of those. We did like, I would say six or seven like that, uh, that were piss uh, so, up. And I was, that was very helpful from a business point of view. Oh, I bet. Yeah,
0: very helpful. Because
1: that made you real. If you're yeah. on TV, you're real. Right. If you're not on TV, maybe you're real, but probably not.
0: <laughs> yes. Do you think that's flipped now? Do you think, like, if you're on TV, you're not real anymore? <laughs> uh, well, you've got to
1: do something. You've got to be something.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: And it depends on what you mean by real.
0: Yes, exactly. So what was it like growing up being Tim Jennings? What was your childhood like? Well, it was, it was uh, odd.
1: Um, and I don't know how much I want to go into it. We were a white family in a mostly black neighborhood. Um,
0: and this is where
1: Philadelphia. Uh-huh. City of Philadelphia, in a neighborhood called Germantown. Um, my father was from a working class family, uh, which meant that during the Depression, they were very, very poor. And my mother was from a family that was not working class, which meant that she was comfortable all during the, the, the Depression. And they were active in radical politics. And it caught up and bit them in the uh, 50s. So uh, my father, who had been a high school teacher, was uh, uh, on the newspapers as being the uh, president of a red union, teachers union. And the House Un-American Activities Committee came in and fired all of the members of that union. And my father was in on the newspapers. You know, this picture and big headlines and stuff yeah. like that. I was too young to know that this was going on. But there was certainly a lot of tension yeah. around yeah. it that I think I was picking up. And we moved out of the working class white VA, actually. Veterans veterans housing mm-hmm. that we'd been in before. And into this neighborhood, uh, or nice big house, nice big yard, nice enough neighbors. Uh, but then I got sick and I was, I was not, uh, I think I missed crucial portions of my socializing childhood. So I always like had good friends and I was always close to some people, but the ability to go out and mix with people. Uh, and establish myself in a, in to put it crudely, a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think was crippled. Um, I think both my sister and my brother had trouble with that too, though, because of the nature of the area we were growing up in. But uh, you know, we always had enough to eat. The house was like leak had the roof leaked, and uh, they didn't have any heat on the third floor. But. Uh, I was never worried about any of that stuff. I think my parents sometimes were. My father went back to college and got ended up uh, becoming an important, at least for a while important, American historian. Nice. Uh, specializing in colonial Indian relations and sort of changing people's perceptions of what that was all about. That's a deep subject. Well, and he was an important character in it and prior to him coming in there it was the stuff that was written was mostly written by descendants yeah. of the colonists right. and had that kind of a spin and he was uh, he thought it was important that you sort of don't just say an indian but you try to figure out which indian right. when you're writing the history and you notice that that same indian was over here and that same indian was over there and how did that all work his first book um, I can't read most of it because it's most of his books because they're they're serious history and you have to sort of look at the footnotes and think about like details in more detail than you think and normally would. Mm. But the first half of his first book, uh, his book was called The Invasion of America, is very readable for anybody and uh, an eye-opener. And my mother had been a writer uh, and mostly stopped that uh, when she had kids and then went back to editing when we got old enough Mm -hmm. and continued having uh, a career, uh, but always subjected to my father's career. I was the youngest of three. Um, I never felt... Less than appreciated in my family, or taken care of. In fact, you know they had to carry me around. They had to like when I needed to pee. They had to like bring a jar for me. It was uh, I wasn't allowed to get oh, up because of your. Illness? I was sick. Yeah, yeah. I had a kind of a a, a kind of arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatic fever, something along the, those lines. Oh. Uh, it's all sort of mushy and it was called different things at different times and I got I stopped having it Uh, I would have relapses and the last serious relapse I had I was in my very early 20s and then I moved to Vermont and it's not been a problem since it's like good hippie air up here (laughs) I think being far away from my family didn't hurt oh okay and uh, and I don't know what else, but that, but that I think all, um, well, to whatever extent I was able to do it, I was doing it. Yeah.
0: So were we your siblings? Did they tell you stories? Were your parents storytellers? Or well, we
1: all—my uh, parents both were hams, and they would both done uh, you know amateur theatricals at different times, mm-hmm. and they both told stories about things that yeah, they told stories in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, my mu my father's mother would sit out on the porch and she was like an Appalachian figure and you know, he comes from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, which is the northernmost bit of that coal mining area. And she would talk about the family mostly, different people in the family for, for hours. Um, my brother did tell me, well, I wasn't allowed to go to movies, so he would tell me movies. And he also told me The Princess on the Glass Mountain. Nice. And my mother's mother was uh, from a, she was like third generation German immigrant. Her father was born in America, but her grandfather definitely was not. He had to leave Germany because of uh, that whole um, 1848 uh Crackdown on liberal politics in Europe. It came to America with nothing, and um, my grandmother's father uh, hit it big. It was a, one of the periods of time when you could go from rags and riches. That's what we're talking Andrew, Andrew Carnegie era. Right, and yes. he uh, patented he made a he patented a kind of mucilage that he ended up supplying when they decided to put mucilage on stamps. It was oh. his mucilage. <laughs> so they were fine during the depression, but she you know, had relatives that spoke with thick German accents and was definitely in Baltimore, which is where she lived. There was a, a, a strong, pre-World War I, a strong and proud uh, German population
0: I think back in those days, a lot of the communities where there were immigrant sections, they were very proud.
1: Well, it stopped being that way with the Germans. You, right, more than like Mexicans or anything like that. It was like you, you did not want people to think you were a German, with World War One and World War Two. That was it. You just you didn't you were not proud of that. But before that, it was like in contention with the english the ar people it was like we are the the german people and we're better than the english people definitely and uh, there was like a quali- different quality that like they made uh, germans were supposed to be warmer you know more commut- kind of i know yeah uh, uh, no I, I yes i know the stiff british up more can seem a little standoff sometimes and, and like you know, andrew manken for example is a baltimore german okay and he um, he always was like down on the British and up with the Germans what I'm getting around to here is the my grandmother having grown up in that kind of community uh, while it wasn't a big deal she was home alone with me while I was being sick Um, the idea of relating a Grimm's fairy tale to a sick child without a book present was not an alien idea to her So I did hear a number of, not enough, some, a few uh, Grimm's fairy tales from my grandmother from memory. And I know which ones they were. Uh, One was uh, Rumpelstiltskin. And I remember her saying, uh, looking at me sharply, and saying, now, she didn't know. She was just a young girl. She didn't know that once you had a baby, you would never give it up. You would never part with it for any, I think I must've looked a little anxious. <laughs> and uh, She told um, uh, town musicians, yeah. and I remember it being in love with the donkey. It wasn't there, but I loved it and it was there. I remember that really strongly. Uh, the same way that uh, Marie Sendak was in love with Mickey, that same quality of ah. my heart going out to it, excitement, and uh, the other one she told was Hansel and Gretel. I like that story, and I remember the you know the finger going through the <laughs> the the, uh, the bone the cage, going through the yeah. through the, the the bars. So I had that. And then it was gone it was like a smell i didn't I didn't remember it until I was exposed to it again and then oh, oh there's this yeah. oh. That's so cool. and we did have uh, what we did have in my family was so uh, we sang all the time, and my mother's father uh, actually grew up on the grates of another uh, utopian community on the grounds he was his parents were descended from the founders, actually, the main founder uh, of the something called the North American Phalanx in New Jersey, which was lasted longer than Oneida, lasted longer than a lot of those things.
0: I Oneida was the longest. Well, that's interesting. It was,
1: maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't long. It was. It was the longest secular uh, commune for sure. Uh, and the thing that made it uh, stop was the, there was a fire, and they. They couldn't find funding. They couldn't find uh, backing for, to build a new, a new factory because the guy who'd been their main backer had decided that you had to be religious to make these things work. Oh. I know. <laughs> That's uh, funny. So, but there was the, he grew up um, with a lot of people coming through. Uh, they, they moved to a lot of different places and he used, heard a lot of music and a lot of songs. He couldn't sing. He was a terrible voice. But uh, i never met him, but this according to my mother. She said to me, you know, I don't think my father could sing either, she said to me once. <laughs> but uh, he sang to his kids all the time, sang to everybody all the time. It was a social thing. You would get together, be a piano, you'd sing. And we, uh, you'd sing to your kids when they were in bed, and I had that. And we also sang while we were washing dishes. We'd all wash dishes together. We'd all sing together. Uh, we, my mother would play piano, and we'd all sing around the piano. That's so cool. And uh, and some of the songs that we sang were definitely very old songs. So when my mother sang, uh, I do this now. I do I do Barbie Allen the way my mother sang it to me, and it's a uh, part of my show often. Um, so and the other songs, you know, the fox and um, and I don't know how many of these were songs that she got from her father I know that the Irish drinking songs were from her father (laughs) Uh, but uh, and there were others as well but also she used to hang out with uh, during the summers uh, where there was a a famous folklorist and his son was a teenage folk singer back in the 20s and uh, little 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 Willie Huntington Um, and so I think she probably got some of that stuff from him too uh and the famous folklorist did according to family lore say that a couple of the songs that my father my grandfather sang uh, were songs that were very rare and there weren't many different they were hard to find if you were a collector you would be very proud if you found it and he had the folk music the actual folk musicians attitude towards music towards the songs as opposed to the folklorist's attitude towards the songs which was he wasn't looking for folk songs he was looking for good songs.
0: Yes. Yes, I totally get that. So do you, do you know those rare songs?
1: I know a couple of them. You do? That's yeah.
0: great. I like that. Going back to you being a, um, a solo performer at one point, and how long were you doing that for, before you met Leanne? Well, for a living,
1: probably 12 years or so. Oh, wow. And before that, for another probably 12 years or so, trying to figure out what I was doing, and then, having a pretty good you know being doing it as a part of my work uh, as a as a teacher mm-hmm. uh, and things like that, and also just as a a thing I was interested in doing because I didn't know anybody else who was doing it
0: right well that was you were you were very early into this,
1: yeah, I had very little to do with the the scene
0: right. You were just doing your thing up here.
1: I was interested. I did. My, I was shaped by uh, people who didn't necessarily care about storytelling or folklore. Right. And I think that's a good way to be shaped.
0: Because it makes you craft your stories to make sure that people that aren't interested become interested.
1: Well, they're more like, people hear you and they like it. They're more likely to want to hear more.
0: Yes.
1: And there is this thing that happens happened to magic during the 50s which is you know it ceases to be a a general interest and the people who are interested in it just do it with each other and that can have a poor effect on the quality of the experience at least as experienced by I mean at, at its best if you're a magician it means that people that know how the trick is usually done um, uh, are interested because they don't see how you did it. Right. right. Uh, but if you're just somebody watching the trick and it's otherwise not entertaining, right, then they don't want to see that again.
0: Yeah, I, I totally get that. So do you think there's an advantage over doing solo versus your, your duo storytelling, or do you th- or do you think they each have their own?
1: I think it's very much power. each have their own power. I think that the solo material, you're like having a relationship with the audience. It's like a religious, not religious, a, 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 like a, almost like a, a, a sexual relationship. You want, you have to woo them. You have to win them. Uh, if you have them, you really, it's just you that has them. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, you don't have. You can change things on the fly. Um, you can add things in easily. Uh, uh, I liken it to um, the difference between uh, black and white and color in movies. Uh, I would not want to see Night of the Hunter* in color. I wouldn't want to see uh, *Casablanca* in
0: color. I was just thinking the same. You
1: know, it's like the the, the certain the black and white is a thing.
0: Yeah.
1: And. Uh, And color can be distracting and it can also, um, if it's colorful, you can sort of forget that there's things that it's not, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do.
1: So uh, I miss working with Leanne because that was the best work I've done, unquestionably. I was pretty good, maybe not as good as I thought I was. But I was pretty good.
0: I don't know. I like... I, 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 and there
1: was people who liked Weatherbeard who really were upset when I stopped being a solo... when I started doing this other stuff. And I stopped being on television because the guy didn't want to do the two of us. And, you know, there was... And I'm making half as much money because uh, it gets split two ways. And uh, if you're working with your partner, there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, you better get along pretty well. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and if, you know, there's you all had. kinds of mm. reasons why you might not be able to work together anymore, and then what happens to all that stuff. Right. And, um, and if you're not working with your partner, if you're working with somebody else, then there's the whole problem with scheduling. And, you know, you better get along again really well. But, you know, Nichols and May, there's nothing better than Nichols and May. The other thing that shaped my storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, besides the two things that I've mentioned, the back of my childhood and then seeing that lady, uh, Sarah Cleveland, um, was a comedy. So we had a couple refugees from... Second City Compass Players. We had uh, Shelley Berman's records. We had Nichols and Nays records. I saw Nichols and may on uh, David Frost. Um, I saw uh, Charles Lawton on Ed Sullivan. That's a whole story. I'm hoping to do a, a lecture on Charles Lawton as storyteller, uh, but he was doing that for a while. I didn't know. Uh, he's brilliant.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, not always. But the things that he's brilliant at, impeccable, really good. Um, I saw uh, Beyond the Fringe was in our house. I could do all that stuff. <laughs> I could do it all, you know, the way obnoxious kids are with Monty Python. Yes, that was me yeah, with me Beyond is. the Fringe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I missed. I missed out on Monty Python. I didn't get to it until I was an adult, um, and I didn't listen to. Uh, I didn't listen to Bill Cosby. He was not my favorite. Which is odd, because we went to the same high school. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Germantown High. Oh, wow. Not at the same time. I, well, I went yeah. at the same time as one of his brothers. It was a big school. I wouldn't have known him anyway. Uh, it was 1,400 people in my incoming class.
0: That's a lot. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was down to 800 people by the time we graduated. <laughs>
0: but. <laughs> um, so one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm doing this... Um, podcast is to try and get more young storytellers to do folk and fairy tales or to encourage them because it seems to me that personal narrative has 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 wiped us clean it's like the golden child right now yeah and i i don't want to see folk and fairy tales myths and legend die as as an art form well
1: Well, you know it's always come and gone I mean, it's not, well, yeah. we're not like the first people to come along and say we could do this stuff. We right. won't be the last. I think that there's a couple of problems. I can, I've can. i been thinking about this quite a bit, as you may imagine. Um, because if you Google Vermont storytelling, it's all moth style.
0: Yes.
1: And there's a lot of it. And it's very organized. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. There's a bunch of reasons for it. One is... There's never a question about who owns the story. Now, if you go to the trouble of taking a story, a folktale, out of a book and making it so it sings and it's like live, it's very easy to learn for somebody else.
0: Yes.
1: It's hard to get it out of the book. Easy to pick up. That's what makes it good. That's how it's supposed to be. Yes. But it's very difficult if you're a professional storyteller and you go somewhere and you start telling your favorite story and they think it's not your story. They think it's the way that other guy told it. And maybe they tell it better than you do. Hard to say. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the impact. The first one is that's the real one when they hear it. So people got kind of bitter about that. I think that was like a, a big issue in... Um, I haven't spent much time in Jonesboro, but I sort of observed from the edges, like like Beowulf looking, looking <laughs> over the edge of the world. Um, uh, but I, I have been there. Uh, but I know, for example, I heard uh, Jackie Torrance tell a story that the folk tellers told. And she went on this long, elaborate uh Preamble about how she her car broke down on this little mountain road, and she got out, and there was an old lady sitting on her porch, and said, "You, you sit right down here, and I'll tell you a story." And uh, no, it didn't. No, she didn't. (laughs) This was how she was going to get away with telling this story. That was a good story that she first heard from the storytell folk tellers, in my opinion, Uh, because the folk tellers had complained about her doing something similar. Huh. and Jackie Torrance was going to do whatever she was going to do. She was a force of nature, and she felt like the stories belonged to everybody, and they do. But it's difficult if you're faced with yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and, in fact, it's always been a problem. With vaudeville, it was a problem.
0: Right, everyone
1: doing the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you, st- you, know, you stole my peep, my bit. Yeah. Uh, Bert Lahr never got over... Uh, Joey Lewis, that um, was his name. Joey something or other. Uh, the guy at the end of uh, uh, "Some Like It Hot" that, that drives off with the oh, yeah, yeah. that guy. Well, Joey Brown. Joey, he, he thought he stole his act, and he, he, you know, in some ways he did. He did it much more subdued, so it worked on the movies. Whereas Burt Lar would just make the screen melt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So there's that. And then there's the question of the audience. I have alluded to this earlier. They really have it built in, first of all, that it's easy for somebody that's never done it before to do it. Talk about the moth style storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Easy for somebody that's never done it before to do it. And there's some quality control. And there's an audience. They have figured out a way to get an audience there every time. There's good variety because people get up there and get... And there are winners and losers. And there are people that get asked to do it again. Mm. And you also, as I understand, people will take you aside afterwards and say, look, this is, this is what worked and what didn't work. And you listen because you can tell that it wasn't working. I think this is true. I haven't been to one of these, but I've been paying attention again, like Rendell, from a distance, peering over the edge of the world. And I would rather hear the moth on uh, the radio. Now that is like distilled. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's stuff that's gone through a number of iterations. Right. Then a lot of Michael Parent, uh, maybe I should say a a storyteller we both know, who has had a good career and is well-respected, has several times, and who has experience in several different forms of performance besides storytelling per se, has expressed to me several times, asked me, why did I think... That the general base level that's expected for quality in every form of performance is so much higher than it is with storytelling.
0: And we're talking folk and fairy tales or are we talking... Yes.
1: Yes. But storytelling in general. Okay. But not this new system of storytelling. But if you go to like a storytelling gathering... Right. Yes. But so those guys you always there was always a mix. You would do folk and fairy tales, but you would also do you would hear people do other stuff yeah, too. Uh fictional stories, uh, something out of uh maybe historical, uh maybe something from Ray Bradbury, you know, just yeah, there would yeah. be there would be a, a some if there was a I always preferred it if there was a mix. Right.
0: Um
1: but definitely folk and fairy tales. Definitely folk and fairy tales. Why the general level of uh, professionalism it's maybe the wrong word because they're not all professionals, no. but the standard of quality. If you get like a, a an open mic and somebody gets up there with like a couple of guitars and voices, odds are that's going to be they're going to know how to play their instruments yes and they're going to sing in tune and they're going to know the song mm-hmm. and they're going to sing it in good time and there'll be harmonies and... It'll be at least modestly enjoyable. You won't <laughs> wish you were somewhere else. <laughs> and this is not always true um, with uh, what we call storytellers. Uh, many times, I think, this was, uh, what's his name? The English guy wrote, uh, B- Ben ha- Haggard.
0: Yeah, Ben, ben Haggarty. Yeah. Ben
1: Haggerty wrote a, an article that uh, Tim Shepard sent me called uh, Seek Out the Voice of the Critic. And I I think so. And I think you got in a lot of trouble with it because the people who are interested in storytelling <laughs> don't want people thinking that about them.
0: I know. I yeah. know. And I know. yet there, there are storytellers that I've seen who have said, I'm not interested in critique. And it's like, well, why are you not interested in critique? Because only by looking at critique are you going to make yourself better and you're going to create a better... Um, uh, reputation for our art form.
1: Well, or you could like pick some other group to tell your stories to besides people that are all going to have their turn. Yeah, and be polite. True. Yeah, and if it doesn't work, look hard at yourself and see what you're doing. Let them tell you.
0: Yeah. I
1: think you know, seek out the voice of the critic. That's one way of putting it. Uh, for me, I didn't like. I didn't want to listen to critics. I mean, I did eventually, but uh, the thing that really made it work was. Either that audience was holding me up, or it wasn't. And if it wasn't holding me up, you could tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And that was, I wouldn't want to be there. Who would want that? Who would want to live yeah. in that space?
0: Yes.
1: It's called dying, for God's <laughs> sake.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. uh and it, it is, you know, when you're up on stage and, and, and uh, you flop, I think there's no better word than uh, dying. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, It's true. So do you, why do you think young people should take up the mantle of folk and fairy tales? Or do you not think that people should take up the mantle of the ancient story?
1: The only reason to do it is if you heard it and you loved it.
0: But do you think there's something that that folk and fairy tales, myths and legend gives yeah that other, other forms of storytelling doesn't?
1: Totally. Mean? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, it's unmediated. So uh, people can't say that shouldn't have happened. That's not right that that happened. Because it happened. It's like history that way. Yeah. That's the way the story goes. Right. And there's things that need to be said that that's the only way you're going to sing. Uh, Leanne had this idea. I sometimes think I had it, but I think really she had it. Uh, this often was true. <laughs>
0: <I think laughs> yeah. It's true, any kind of relationship. That was uh, my idea. No, it was my idea. Well, I think, she, I think
1: she... I think, <laughs> um, that folk tales and, and fairy tales are the, the actual, the kind that circulate. Aside from the quality that I think, which is that they're Darwinian, that if they didn't, if they wasn't something there, they would not be in that form.
0: Yeah.
1: That, that would be lost, that yes. they are, they are select, they are naturally selected colonies of memes that somehow go together in such a yeah, way, yeah, and right. the old time meme, not yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not yeah. what the kids are talking about with the pictures, <laughs> but like the ideas. Yeah. Uh, uh, so with all folk material I'm, I'm drawn to that stuff because it's, it is what it is and if you can discover it there is power there it's, otherwise it wouldn't be there at all
0: yeah.
1: and the way in which it is generated is mysterious and is not unrelated as I think both uh, Jung and Freud thought to the way dreams work that it's a kind of cultural dreaming. And there isn't anything else. And its I mean, people say that movies are like dreams, and they are, but they're so controlling. You know, mm-hmm. it's like one... Yeah. Uh, this is like, it happens in your mind. It doesn't happen in front of you. And it's sort of... If you don't dream, literally, if a person doesn't dream, if you wake people up... And Leanne actually used to be in a dream clinic, so they did some of the early work in this... Uh, if you wake people up when their REM starts, when they're starting to dream, and you don't let them have that dream, within a couple of days they'll start to exert, exhibit uh, psychotic symptoms. Really? They will go crazy. Yes, this is this is not wow. this is settled science. That is true. And I think the same thing. And the people say, "What's the function of the dreams?" We don't know, but there's that.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: um, and I and it seems to us that. Folk tales, presented in that fashion, where it happens inside the people's minds, as, as the two of you are together, it's going from your mind to their mind. You're sharing this dream. Yeah. That if you don't have these things, you're, you could, you're, the, the culture could go crazy. That it could go off the off the skids. So there's that. That's interesting. And then there's what Tolkien said and in his book on fairy stories his long essay on fairy stories now he's not just he's not talking about folk tales that you hear he's talking about a broader um category of of fantasy including ancient fantasy of the mythic and epic and fairy tale variety but also stuff that people are writing now mm-hmm. like him mm-hmm. uh He said, he thought that they were, fairy tales were actually literal magic spells that took you into a different world and gave you experiences in that world that were, I haven't got his words, but they were elevating in a certain kind of way that they could, uh, uh, and when he wrote, he said, joys like spears, you know, uh, could make you cry a little bit, could bring a to just, uh, and he thought it was through that, I mean, he was Christian. So he thought that through that experience, you could be aware that there was another world higher than this. And that was an approach towards that higher world, which was uh, God in heaven and all that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, whatever it is, it's definitely someplace else. And when you come back, you have been somewhere and it's different. And you can say that to people, but if they haven't been there, right. if they haven't had that happen, then they don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: So, And it is a problem that there are, I mean, I did get a few little brushes with stories that were told unselfconsciously by people that, to whom that was normal that they would tell those kinds of stories and really knew how to do it. And I'm not sure how possible that is anymore. I don't know if those people exist. I think there's a whole Southern culture uh, thing that uh, does not necessarily, it's like for the tourists in a certain kind of way or for people to show that they're, they're, you know, it's like a, and that's the way things get, Transmitted. I mean, the, certainly the Germans like to do Grimm's fairy tale because they're so German. Yes. And uh, But I don't think they necessarily get what's good about them when they do that, when they dress up like uh, uh, 19th century Germans ladies and read out of a book exactly the same way. I don't think that's necessarily the right yeah. way to do it. And I think that if you tell jack tales uh, in Southern dialect... If that's who you are, if you're if you but you should you should be normal. You should sound like who you really are right. and not who you are putting on to be like that person, except to a certain extent, I guess. I mean you are a different person when you're telling the stories. You are availing yourself of, of expressive elements that you wouldn't necessarily use
0: otherwise. For one thing, you're talking all the time. Yes.
1: Which <laughs> Is not normal.
0: Yeah, I think you... I, I don't know. Well, at least for me, um, there's, there's parts of me that goes into the, each of those characters in the story. So I, I become those... I become the story as much as the story becomes me.
1: Yeah? Well, I think of it as you're the medium. Right, yeah, yeah. Literally. Definitely. Yeah, conduit. There is the story, and there is the audience, and there's you. Right. And you use... And if you were actually to put on a costume for the characters, each character, you would be less who that character is, specifically because you're less who you are.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And there's a thing, you know, if you can lose your self-consciousness, that's when you really become yourself. I mean, there's a lot of interesting...
0: That's what they call it was. Papa Joe calls it, I can't remember where he got it from, but writing the elusive dragon. (laughs) Which I really like that. And, and th- there is this place where you go when you're telling stories, when you're on, you yeah, know, that is not there on the stage or not there in the room, for sure, for sure.
1: Well, I, I uh, at this point, most of the stories I do, um, I let the story get into me. Um, but I'm also, there is a, I'm always very aware of the audience and how aware how well that it's hitting. And if it's hitting well enough that I don't have to think about it, there is a thing that happens right yeah but, uh, but a lot of times i'm I'm making adjustments and uh, seeing how much time I got and mm-hmm. um, I think I and always. Uh, not assuming that the audience is with me but doing whatever I can to make that uh, dominating is the wrong word uh, because it's not I'm not crushing them
0: right
1: but uh, where I really get uncomfortable if I don't have all the focus if there's somebody who's looking at their (laughs) phone or uh, certainly talking
0: yeah I go that um, and I've gotten better about it you don't throw things at them anymore. I don't yell at them <laughs> take that loaf of bread you talker <laughs> <laughs>
1: well I think I, I, I said in a thing I wrote for um, uh, a fairy tale episode of uh, storytelling magazine um, in, in Weatherbeard of mm-hmm. uh, I, I sort of detail uh, the stages it went through while I was learning it. Um, oh, okay. Oh, that's pretty interesting. I, I, I took some time and thought about it. Well, the first thing is, I saw that it was good. I wasn't sure why it was good. And the actual, the actual version of it that I saw, I don't know where it is anymore. I haven't been able to find it because I don't think I made that stuff up. And it's not the same as the one that you find in, uh, east of the sun, west of the moon in the, in the normal translation. So first I saw it it was long it was interesting I, was, I needed to come up with something I wanted something more ambitious this looked ambitious and then I was drawn to the end because the end has that uh, dueling magicians thing mm-hmm. and I knew from I knew it, it doesn't read well it's just it doesn't make sense from it a literary piece and that made me think oh well maybe that's because it's not a literary piece and this is specifically an oral quality that will only reveal itself once it's in time and I was familiar with this trope of the dueling mag- music- magicians from uh, a couple of places. Uh, there's a song. There's an English song. Uh, it's actually about somebody who wants to rape somebody. Oh, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, um, and first he, she turns into this, and he turns into this, and she turns, into, he turns, into, and she that that kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, it's in "Sword in the Stone" in the original uh, children's book, uh, where Madame Mim.
0: Yes. And Merlin have a
1: contest.
0: And that, I think, is taken from the story of Taliesin's birth. Could be. From Bach.
1: Well, I don't know that. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, and then he turns in, because he's so, he's anachronistic, he's living backwards. He, he's able, he wins by being chickenpox and infecting the, uh-huh. that's how he wins. <laughs> it's
0: a giant dragon and
1: all of a sudden it breaks
0: out. And yes, that's right. I remember, yes. Yeah.
1: So I knew that, the, that this was a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I started in, and I. If there were different stages, and you could tell that like there were certain places where uh you would get where people would get restless, and I would have to deal with the restlessness. And at first, the whole thing sucked. Um, but the first thing I got, so it pretty well did sing. Was the end, and then the whole beginning with the three sisters. I figured out how to do that, so it wasn't boring. And then there was this one little moment uh, where there were two places where there still were issues. Um, and one was um, the, the transition from when the eagle lands on the platform right. and then gets to the big mountain, big, big building. And then there's the heaps of dead bodies out in the yard. That brings them in. And then the eagle starts telling them what to do. And it's all gotten quiet and then it starts going on quiet for quite a while and you have to figure out why, what you, can you do because people, at this point, people maybe young, young audiences are maybe starting to look at each other and talk. And so I put in this thing where the eagle says, now you're going go to go into that big building there and you're going to see a lot of sleeping creatures. But don't worry as long as you don't talk. <laughs> and you know, I look at look at the talker. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> then there won't be a problem. Just don't talk and you'll be fine. <laughs> and the kids didn't always know what was going on, but they did stop talking.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the other thing was I never did get he sells the horse three times in the story. Right. And they're already a little impatient. Because you get to this point, uh, and it was his son. And that seems like the end of the story. Yeah. And the son says, no, we don't have to be poor anymore. And I'll tell you how it's going to work. And oh my God, there's there's more. You know, so, uh, and then if you have, if he sells the horse three times, that's just too much. Yes so I finally ended up dropping two of the horses and then I had he just sold them once and then it was uh, fine and it worked the whole thing worked from the beginning to the end and you could tell so and I would know that it was I would know that it was going well because I would say uh, and then he sold the bridle and if you've got it going just right somebody's going to go oh (laughs) or oh no or something like that. You're, yes, I think yes, and then I, I do the end, with with that 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 tumultuous, churning, final,
0: uh, speedy, uh, magician's duel. Um, what's the most what's the most important thing to you when you're telling stories? What's what what makes you all, what floats your boat?
1: If I feel like we've all been through this thing together and it's it's worked, you know, that it's been a... I like doing a whole show and I like having the feeling that uh, we've been through... We've gotten to know each other on some sort of basic level and uh, we've gone through a number of different emotions together. Uh, people have been... Um, uh, if I do it right, there's a... Enough variety in the material that I present that there's a, a lot of a lot of laughing. Uh, there's some very quiet moments when you can still feel the the, the connection really strongly. Um, some of the things I do evoke like a really strong feeling of nostalgia, uh, and you can uh, just a really kind of a warm, satisfied feeling on the part of the audience, and they're giving back. Yeah. all the time that, that it's not you're not like shouting into an empty room that they're oh, very much right. there yeah. um, I always tell them at the end when they say that was really wonderful I always say I couldn't do it without you yeah
0: that's a true statement yeah what's the most rewarding work that you think you've done either independently or collectively
1: well everything's different I mean I like doing a big audience But the material is not really suitable for a big audience. And when you go to Jonesboro and you see the big shots performing in the big tent, they have clearly been shaped by performing in front of a big audience. They uh, present in a different kind of a way than the kind of material I like is best suited to. Right. Uh, they are, they are for more emphasis. You let people know something's coming. You remind them that it's coming. You say, here it is. And you say, there it was. And they say, wasn't that great? You know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And that's, yeah. um, uh, and part of that is just you know you any audience that sees like, falls in love with a performer, that performer can get away with anything.
0: That's, yeah, I think there's a lot. And that
1: was let's see, people like great comics in Vegas, yeah, just uh, cease to be great comics because they are. It's not pandering exactly. It's what the audience wants. Right. But I mean, it's very few people that have managed to. Garrison Keillor was one of the few people I think that was able to stay pretty sharp right to the end but and I do like you know getting up on a stage and doing something and being bigger than usual and uh, have, you know, hearing the big thing come back Yeah. but uh, yeah, small groups in close mm-hmm. uh, of course I'm old now and it may just be that that's that's I why see. I like it
0: I don't know. I mean, I I was doing a gig at the um, New Hampshire, um, Southern New Hampshire University. Yeah. And it was going to be between three and five hundred people. Yeah. Six people showed up. Oh, yes. And, I I mean, initially I was like, wow. Yeah. This is good. (laughs) But then, when we pulled everybody up front. Right. That was one of the most enjoyable storytellings for me because the people that showed up were the ones that wanted to hear it yeah 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 you know and there was this real connection with the stories and them and and them and me and it was
1: yeah and they were committed yeah they were they They didn't say uh oh what am I doing here and leave right
0: no they didn't yeah they didn't I think maybe one person walked in saw there was nobody there and left again I will sometimes get
1: people up on stage with me if there's a stage in that kind of
0: situation yeah this is just open floor space yeah with a lot of chairs (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I so I have got we we, chair, so. we did get
1: good at <laughs> at uh, at working with with audiences that were smaller than they might be but and we've had enjoyable experiences doing it but I really like a full room. Yeah. If it's a small small room and a, and packed that's my favorite.
0: Yeah.
1: Or, or a small room and comfortable with small number of people that's fine too. Big room and a few people. You have to work, I have to work harder to create that sense of warmth uh, that uh, is a thing I learned how to do. I didn't always know how to do that, creating a sense of warmth. And I think the way I did that, or we did that, of course it helped that I had Leanne on the stage with me. Mm-hmm. People just uh, were more ready to be warm towards me when Leanne was on stage with I think that this is true and when I finished when we, I did most of the talking for the, the shows but when people came up to talk afterwards always went to talk to
0: Leanne I've noticed that <laughs> I've noticed that
1: but um, you know, we had a regular gig and this was a really good thing and I don't know if I would call it the most rewarding thing but it was a really good thing And we did it every summer. We went to this resort called uh, Basin Harbor Club, which is up on Lake Champlain. And it's been there for quite a long time. It's in the same family. And it's not a modern resort. It's an old-timey resort, which is to say that the people who do the hiring are the people who own it. It's not like a big thing with, like, slots. Yeah. It's like there's rooms. And somehow... Actually, a, 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 a friend of ours who's a musician said, you really ought to try uh, booking at Basin Harbor Club. Uh, and I didn't. And then Leanne said, Lars says you should really try booking at Basin Harbor Club. <laughs> and I said, all right, it's not going to work. <laughs> and uh, we sold the music to them. And then once we sold the music to them, again, I mentioned that I've been on television. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the owners said to the booker, uh, that's Tim Jennings, you ought to get him to do some storytelling. And I think when we first started, it was me. I don't think we had a, a, a duo act with storytelling in it, or not much of one. So we'd play some music and I'd tell a story. Maybe she would tell a story. And then this went on for years after years after years after years. And we always had to have new material.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there would be people that would request the stuff that they'd seen before. And started out with a very small group in and in we didn't set it up right. And then as time went on, it got set up right. And uh, we just knew how to do it. And it was hard work. We had it was an hour and a half drive from here, mm-hmm. uh, half an hour from where we used to live. Um we set up the whole setup. Uh had to get there like an hour ahead of time. I had to figure out how to eat because it was after dinner. Uh some of the time we played music in the dining hall uh, before we told stories. But it was it became a tradition. Uh people grew up and got married. And had us play for their weddings.
0: That's um, so cool. It
1: was like that's part of Basin Harbor Club to them. Yeah, was the storytelling on which, whichever night it was, and the kids would stay up late because we wouldn't do it until nine o'clock, because dining we didn't, wouldn't do it before dinner yeah. because we didn't want to be the children's hour, which they would send the kids in without them, mm-hmm. and. uh and we didn't want little kids, except for little kids that could stay up late. And we would do two sets, sometimes three sets. And we would do the scary stuff late. And um, we got that feeling that, like, feel like after you've had a really good meal with good company and good friends. Yeah. We had that feeling on a regular basis. It's
0: like and, a family.
1: Well, and they were all rich. This is the thing I didn't like about it, you know, is that they were. Um, you know, people that were going to spend a week at an old-time resort in Vermont, so they, they were maybe owned land in the area. Yeah. Uh, there was not. It was not a folky audience. It was a professional class at least and inherited wealth as well. Uh, in fact, that was really what it started out as. Um, people with Castle loafers with no socks, and you know, that I was told of what the people wore and a uh, certain kind of dance music after they were used to. We were doing something different, and they liked that. They liked it that it wasn't, they weren't going to see this once they figured it out, right? They weren't going to see this anywhere else, and and we were at home there. We felt like that was. And I felt confident. We felt like we, we we could do this. And people were interested in what our next thing was. And, the you know, we would be there six or seven times a summer. So the first time we did it, it didn't matter if it the new piece, it didn't matter if it didn't zing completely the first time because we'd have it by the end of the year. Yeah. And then, you know, people, would, we could recycle stuff after two or three years and sold a lot of CDs. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that Got work from, you know, people would have us come all the way down to somewhere or other for a birthday party, you know, and put us up in a hotel with our dog. I mean, it was a, it was, I, I, we felt a little funny. I mean, they were on vacation and they were nice people, but they certainly were from a different socioeconomic bracket than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, that was okay because we were artists and they, they, they did not. We I made it clear that it had to be the way we wanted it to be. That we were not uh, we weren't fungible. We, there were things we couldn't do. And getting home at twelve thirty after packing the van.
0: Yeah. It's a of uh,
1: full of coffee. Uh, <laughs> start with coffee to load up. Coffee on the road. Mm-hmm. Coffee before. Coffee during. Yeah. Coffee for the road.
0: Zing <laughs> zing <laughs> on the
1: ride home. Then awake until three or four glad that that's not happening
0: yeah.
1: but the, the regular quality of it was nice and then there was the big depression the money was gone yeah. and people didn't go there and they didn't hire us and I think maybe they didn't hire us for more than one year and that's when we put out uh, King of the Thrush <laughs>
0: Oh, is that when it came?
1: That from? was uh, we were thinking about money.
0: I like that scene That's a good one. I like all of them. I mean, they're all, and I like them for different reasons because the stories are so different in each on each recording. It's definitely different vibes.
1: While well, we were looking for themes, yeah. which I didn't used to, but the last one I wish we had done differently. Uh, Vampire Princess.
0: Yeah.
1: I think would have gone further if I'd first of all, if we hadn't called it the vampire princess, uh, called the C D the Vampire Princess, but called the story um The Gypsy Soldier. So you didn't know when, when, when the when the lady says the princess ah, is a vampire right. it would be a little bit of a surprise.
0: Right.
1: Um and we should have like done one short piece, maybe Mr. and Mrs. Knight our shortest piece first and then our longest piece instead of doing the shortest piece and the next longest piece and then the next longest piece and the next longest piece and, the longest piece and then the longest piece last yeah i think that was a problem i think that's a mistake i think we should have put that earlier on it's the the big story anyway but that's got some of our best stories on
0: it yeah i like it i need to i haven't listened to that as much as the wolves one which i think was the first one that i
1: well, you should check out let listen to the vampire princess itself I have it. yeah, just yeah, just yeah, yeah. the just the that story okay. without listening to the other stuff Cause, uh it's better if you haven't already heard us for half
0: an hour liam, <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to tim what was his what was this big bear's attraction to you when you first met him? a lot of things
1: <laughs> he's very nice he he has a lot of energy and Uh, and just a nice, good person. Yeah. I mean, that's really, and he's sweet. And I was sexy in those days, too. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't big. (laughs) I have gotten to, it used to be, for years, people would say, you look exactly the same. People that, like, remembered me from when they were young. Right. You look exactly the same when their kids were young. And recently, it's more like they'll see, like, a video of me From the old days, and they'll say, "You were so young."
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: a big transition. It is. It is. I
0: get that sometimes too. I saw somebody the other day, and they were like, "You look similar, but you're very different." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of weight, a little bit of white. It'll happen to you. Um, How many? Is there? I mean, I get the impression that no other storyteller has really. Um, influenced you at all, that you've you've crafted yourselves out of yourselves? Well, um,
1: that's not strictly true. Uh, I certainly haven't patterned myself on any other storytellers. I've picked up stuff subconsciously, I'm sure. Really do
0: that, yeah.
1: um, there's a guy named that the two biggest early influences in my storytelling that I didn't get off of a record. I mean, there was... There was Richard Chase, mm-hmm. of course, and there was um, uh, Ray Hicks. And they definitely showed me that you could be American and tell fairy tales. And that was important. I had to figure out how to be American like me mm-hmm. and not like them. Right. And that took a while. Right. I did tend to have like, I, did, I didn't I did go yee-haw, but <laughs> there was a suspicious quality. To... I can't do
0: yee-haw right <laughs>
1: And uh, uh, and uh, it really, basically, it came down to, I boiled it down to the ways in which people around here talk and the way my father's family talked and the way the kids around me, the black kids talk, where, where I grew up, and the way I just am. I figured out how to... And Ray Hicks mm-hmm. and Richard Chase... Like what the common thread was for all of that, to come up with a strong vernacular that was not somebody else's vernacular. and this is one of the problems with telling folk tales is that ideally, um, you don't tell them in fairy tale book language, yes, and if you get to uh, people who are actually transcribing. Or if you get it off a record where it was transcribed from somebody who was actually in a culture where this stuff is still practiced you're getting uh you're getting a vernacular you're getting a strong usually quite distant uh uh dialect mm-hmm. and you don't want to talk like that unless that's how you talk or at least somebody in your family talks so uh what was the question <laughs> uh, influences <laughs> ah so um then I, But the first person I heard that sent me to those records was uh, the old lady I told you about, Sarah Cleveland, and mm-hmm. she just talked like a normal person. She didn't talk like a, an Irishman or a Scottish person, although that was clearly where the story had come from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She talked like a nice old lady. And uh, so that was an influence, strong influence. Um, also, there's a guy named Don Baker... This is not Don Davis, yeah this is Don Baker. Two people that were influenced me the most were people nobody else in the storytelling world has heard of. although if you're a folklorist, you've heard of uh, Sarah Cleveland, especially if you're from the the, 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 the northeast mm-hmm. um, and uh, he was just a very gifted is a very gifted performer. I don't think he's doing it anymore. But he's founded a group called Roadside Theater.
0: Oh, yeah, I've heard of them.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'd heard of them. Somebody said, "Have you heard of Roadside Theater? They do like group fairy tales." And I said, "That doesn't sound good to me." <laughs> and I heard their record. And I have to say, I didn't like the record, the children's record. I didn't. I wasn't crazy about that. And in fact, I've seen since then. I've seen uh, videos of stuff that they've that they've done. And I wasn't crazy about the videos they did. And he himself uh, made a video of Ray Hicks. And I wasn't crazy about the video of Ray Hicks. And he was involved with this group called uh, Apple Shop, which was a great society, a cultural center in uh, Appalachia. And he did some storytelling stuff, doing videotape, stuff like that, And also he was in a performance group, and that was the Roadside Theater. Him and his buddies from high school from up in the mountains where he grew up. His mother had been an English teacher who had come from away, and his father was a genuine uh, redneck, hillbilly. And so he had a foot in both worlds and could make that bridge. And I took a two-week course with him at a thing called Augusta, in West Virginia and I wasn't sure about him at all for the first three days and then I saw him work uh, on a stage and it was that same thing it was like I was in love it was just so good and he gave me a couple of pointers it was very useful Um, though I didn't accept them at first (laughs) Uh, but, uh, but after a while I found I was doing them so those two and, uh, you know, and all those comedians and, and uh, uh, whoever, you know, it's just the monologues and yeah. uh, Gilbert and Sullivan and, uh, really? yeah, yeah, I was a big <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan kid. I was in bed a lot and they had records yeah. and some of them were 78. So it was even before Martin Green, it was like.
0: A guy sang like this, and
1: I could do that. The law is a true embodiment of everything that's excellent. Has no kind
0: of fault nor flaw. I even loves embody the law. If there was a, is there a storyteller that you'd like to sit down with and spend like time swapping stories and chit chatting? Someone that you've not met or have met and would like to get back together with?
1: Well, yeah, actually. Connie Reagan Blake. I was going to do that. I was running a storytelling festival and I was going to get her up and then they canceled the festival on me. But uh, she was, um, you know, I always liked, uh, I liked the folk tellers, but I liked her work as a solo better than I liked the folk tellers. Uh And uh, she... I she's a little bit that's a little bit what she does for a living now so I'm not sure that's really what I want to do because I'm not sure that's you know like having groups of people where you you sit together and you do craft stories I but she she can tell you know and she doesn't do this kind of material anymore as much that I like Mm -hmm. but she's awful good and she 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 can do that thing where she's just sitting there quietly and this thing happens and you're in the thing. And it can be uh, a big audience. It could be a big group. And nonetheless, you're, you're in that thing. And I wish she would do more of that. Um, let me think. Who else? I'm not really familiar with uh, a lot of the stuff that's... Uh, I would like to hang out with uh, uh, Don Baker, but he's a, a very private guy. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. Mm. Um, people who are on the scene today. Well, I do hang out with Michael Parent, and we like it a lot. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, because he's so, he's yeah. very direct. Yes, and we have uh, similar opinions about things. And I've seen him do a variety of different things. Um, we were at the Champlain Folk Festival at the same time, and we we both did the thing that was our early piece that made people like us and it was it was interesting to watch his thing which involves juggling yeah
0: he was telling me about that
1: it was pretty good yeah it's pretty good Uh, it's um, a couple of memorable lines Uh, the girl has gone to find her brother and uh, she's got the, the bad guy has her him in the other room uh, bound and gagged, and she hears his noise. And she says, What's that? And the bad guy says, Oh, that's nothing. That's just a something or other. And she says, Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let me tell you something, Buster. You think, you're wrong if you think that a sister doesn't know the sound of her own brother when he's bound and gagged. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is a true statement. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne, is is there a storyteller that you would like to hang out with and, um, and chit chat with?
1: Not at this particular time. No. I like the, the the stuff, but I have haven't been doing anything um, with anybody else. So
0: right. I think we've covered pretty much. <laughs> oh, we're just scratching the surface, it Simon. It's, it's true. It but is, that's fine. It is a scratch on the surface, but thank you so much for letting me come up here and hang out with you.
1: Well, you know, I like talking about this stuff, and one of the reasons why I got involved with Storytel many years ago was that it was a place you could. Yeah. And it's not so much anymore. I mean, it's a, there was, the, again, it's more, uh, does anybody know a story about this or that? Right. Uh which doesn't interest me yeah um there's different kinds of storytellers and i am definitely uh not that kind not the person where they say if can you give us a story about transportation or bullying or something like that many of them have index cards where they can figure out all kinds of stories and they like are able to like they have systems uh uh lois uh, with a capital S at the end, is able, has like a, a system where she can like figure out how to tell a story uh, and she has a, 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 or this in the old days, she had like a index file, I'm sure it's on computer now, where, where things were arranged by subject and that was, that's a perfectly useful uh, kind of storytelling and if you can deliver a thing in a place where people are interested already, has a purpose to it, that gives you an actual hook. It's sort of like Uh, local legends where um, the story can be kind of crappy but if it happened right here it's much better yes (laughs) you know so uh,
0: yeah I discovered that when I went to Pennsylvania I went to um, uh, Jim Thorpe and I went to the prison there oh yeah and it was like cell 31 or whatever it was, and the handprint on the wall. And I was like, this is such a good story. And I got home and I did some research into it and I told it like four times. And it was like, this is a really crappy story when it's in prison.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a, you know, the Grimm's collected two, they have two different collections. Mm-hmm. And one is the Martian and the other is the Saga. And the Martian had stories that everybody agrees didn't happen. And are magic yeah. and they have like story quality. And the other is uh, stories that they don't think happened. They do think happened. Right, right. And and oddly the same stories told about a number of different situations. Yeah. But um, you know, it may often makes your hair stand up a little bit, you know, because it's real. Yeah.
0: Well again, thanks Tim. Thanks Leanne. Sure. Thanks for having me <laughs> here. I'm me do well I'm glad we had a <laughs> chance to
1: talk. Yes, yeah. nice
0: As always, I could have gone on forever talking to Tim and Leanne. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed this conversation as much as I had creating it and learned much about the art of traditional folktales and why they're important. I hope to hang out with Tim and Leanne very, very soon. Thanks to Ben Schultz once again for providing the music for my podcast. I really appreciate it. Creating this show is very much a labour of love, To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this through patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks, where there's also a whole bunch of extras there for you. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation, if you like a particular episode, will all help me reach out further and create more of these conversations. If you can, I know you can, leave a review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump onto the interweb and find out more about my guests. Follow them and me. All of the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I sit down with them. Again, thanks for listening and being there. I hope you join me on the next episode of Conversation with Storytellers. Hey, why not suggest a question for me to ask my next guest... I don't want to spoil any surprises, so I can't tell you who that is. Until next time, shoot me an email. Tell me your favourite